Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are going to talk about the infamous case that started off the research around the bystander effect. Before I get any further into this episode, I do want to give a content warning for sexual assault. I will be describing the the case and the events that happened in it, and some of it can be a little bit graphic, so just know that that is coming up in this episode. The case that I'm going to be discussing today is the Kitty Genovese case. Now, I know that this is not a true crime podcast, but the Kitty Genovese case is a classic example of kind of the intersection between true crime and psychology. And I think that it's a really interesting thing to take a look at to kind of understand how all of these different things had to fall in place for the case to be interpreted in the way that it was for so long. And over the course of this episode, you'll come to see how one error in a newspaper article resulted in decades of conceptualizing the bystander effect in a specific way and skewed research bias for that many years. Efforts to kind of tell the true story of what happened to Kitty Genovese have been difficult to crack into the mainstream, and a lot of psychology 101 textbooks still teach the story in the old way and don't account for some of the new information that we now have about the case and some of the research around this idea of the bystander effect. So I'm going to go over the original case, kind of how it got twisted in the media narrative, um, and some of the efforts that have been undertaken to undo the impacts of that original article. Now, I want to say that the first time that I heard about the Kitty Genovese case and the true story behind it was in a social psychology class that I took at community college when I was uh, getting ready to work on my undergrad. And so I want to say that there are people out there, there are professors out there who are kind of teaching the whole story. And I want to like give credit where credit is due. I cannot remember the name of the professor I had for that class. But I do want to say that like I know people out there are like making the effort to teach what really happened or teach like critical thinking about this case in general. And I will also mention later on, I'll talk about it a little bit more, but there is a documentary that was made by Kitty Genovese's brother called The Witness, where he kind of goes back and 
talks to a lot of the key players in creating the narrative around his sister's murder. And I watched that movie as part of the class that I took. So it, there's stuff out there, but if you crack open a, like an intro to psychology textbook, you will see Kitty Genovese as an example of the bystander effect. And oftentimes it's just run over so quickly that there's not a lot of opportunity to talk about the nuances of the bystander effect and the ensuing like research that was in- literally inspired by this case. So I hope to get into a little bit of that um, today, and I definitely recommend you checking out the sources for this um, episode to read more about the details, but I'm going to go ahead and and jump right in. So I'm going to go over the crime after I talk about who Kitty Genovese was, so the disturbing content is going to be coming up in the next few minutes, just another warning. So who who was Kitty Genovese? Um, She was an Italian-American girl who was born and raised in New York. She, uh, at the time of her death, was still living in New York after her family had uh, moved to Connecticut, and she made the decision to stay in the city and kind of make it on her own. Uh, Kitty was gay. She had been briefly married to a man, but the marriage was annulled uh, within a year, and at the time of her death, she was openly living with her girlfriend, Marianne. Kitty had had kind of an unremarkable life up until this point. She had worked a couple of jobs, uh, mostly worked as a bartender, did have one arrest for um, doing some sort of fraud crime. Like, I think they, I think on Wikipedia it says bookmaking, which I believe is like a type of fraud. (laughs) Um, uh, So she, she had had one encounter with, with uh, the criminal justice system, but I believe she had just been arrested and fined. Um, So in 1964, which was the year of her murder, she was working as a bartender, working double shifts to save up enough money because she one day wanted to open an Italian restaurant. So on March 13th, 1964, Kitty was headed home from work after she closed out of the bar at about 2.30 in the morning. As she was driving home, a man named Winston Mosley had spotted her and began to follow her in his car. When she got back to her apartment, she parked at the rail station parking lot that was, I think, about 100 yards away from her apartment and started to head down the alley uh, into her building. Mosley got out of his car and started following her with a knife. He stabbed her two times in the back and she shouted for help. Mosley then ran away and Kitty crawled around the building into the rear entrance where there were two doors and she managed to make it through the first door uh, but because of her injuries was having trouble getting through the second locked door. Mosley then came back about 10 minutes later, looked around and found her in the entranceway of her building, stabbed her several more times, sexually assaulted her, stole $49 from her, and ran away once again. A neighbor had heard her screaming and came rushing down and found Kitty laying in in front of the door and held Kitty in her arms until an ambulance arrived. This neighbor, Sophie, uh, had come running, not knowing that it was Kitty screaming, uh, but just heard that someone needed help. Um, And the ambulance came and uh, Kitty did eventually, did die in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. I believe a few days later, like five days later, Mosley was arrested. He was identified, caught, and eventually convicted of the crime. And he ended up serving 52 years 
for the assault and his sentence was commuted uh, after 52 years. An interesting side note is that during the initial investigation and like in the first few hours after Kitty's death, the police were really grilling her girlfriend Marianne about their relationship and actually considered Marianne to be a suspect. And from what I was reading, it seemed like the police were really preoccupied with Kitty and Marianne's relationship and their sex life and were asking Marianne really intrusive questions about those topics uh, literally several hours after her girlfriend had been brutally murdered in front of their building. And I know that this episode is not about police um, and I don't have time to get into all of that today, but I do think that this also illustrates how the biases of the police officers or detectives investigating a crime can really dictate the way in which a relationship goes. And at the time, in the 1960s, this would have been considered scandalous and deviant behavior for two women to be living together in a romantic relationship. And the interesting thing is, is that obviously they were welcomed in their neighborhood. They weren't ostracized in their neighborhood because they openly lived together and people knew that Kitty was gay. But the police were so fixated on this being so deviant that they automatically assumed that Marianne could have been a suspect of this like very vicious crime. And it is fortunate that in Kitty's case, the this preoccupation with their sexual orientation did not preclude Kitty's murderer from being found and convicted. I think that there are probably plenty of examples out there of police bias resulting in the perpetrator of the crime not being found because they refuse to follow other leads that don't fit the narrative they have. So it is very fortunate that in this case that did not happen. Um, But if the police continued with this line of, of questioning and investigation and assuming that Marianne had to be the killer because they were deviant lesbians, then Mosley may never have been caught. He did ultimately confess to two other murders as well. Um, so you can see how this, this could have been very dangerous if the police had not been able to catch him. And it also just sucks that Marianne was grieving then the like brutal murder of her girlfriend and within hours of finding this out and witnessing the body of her her partner uh, laying in front of their building, she's being grilled about how often they have sex or how they do it and, um, you know, all these like really intrusive questions. So that just like, that really sucks and just serves to add to the tragedy of Kitty's case. So interestingly enough, the uh, first few articles that were published about this case did not have any mention of witnesses. And it was not until two weeks after the crime, which was after Mosley had been caught, um, the New York Times published an article that stated 38 people had witnessed the assault and done nothing. The headline was something like 38 people witnessed murder and refused to call police or something, something like that. And the reason that that article specifically was published was because the editor of the New York Times at the time, Rosenthal, had had a meeting with the police commissioner of the NYPD, who I guess made some statement to the editor about all these people witnessed this lady murdered, get murdered and didn't do anything. So they pushed this article out 
And in the original article from the New York Times, they quoted an unnamed neighbor, an unnamed neighbor who stated that they debated about calling the police and, quote, decided to not get involved, unquote. A few days later, the New York Times followed up with an analysis article where they had asked three psychologists to weigh in on why people didn't respond in a helpful way. And eventually, Rosenthal published a book um, about the Kitty, Kitty Genovese case that included that kind of original reporting and the analysis from the psychologists. The article spread like wildfire, getting picked up on the AP wire and spreading to other major newspapers. And a lot of the reactions to the article were really people solidifying their beliefs that big cities, particularly New York City, are just full of callous, uncaring people who will just look the other way and allow you to get murdered. And this kind of narrative about city city people or city dwellers being, uh, being uncaring really, like, got rooted in this article about the Kitty Genovese case. So as this story spreads, it inspires some psychologists to start researching this idea of what came to be known as the bystander effect. And in simple terms, the bystander effect is when being in a group of other people discourages an individual from intervening in some type of situation. So whether it is uh, an assault, a crime, or even something like standing up against a bully. Some of the research has even seemed to indicate that the larger the number of bystanders there are, the less likely it is for one of those group members to help the person in distress and that people are more likely to help another person when there's uh, very few or no witnesses present. And so the psychologists who started studying this after the Kitty Genovese murder were uh, named Bib Latane and John Darley. And they were so inspired by the reporting in the New York Times of the case that they started to really look into what could make people be a bystander. So they had two main theories of what influences the bystander effect. And the first was the diffusion of responsibility, which is essentially this idea that the more people are witnessing something, the less individual personal responsibility one person feels. This kind of could be demonstrated by thinking of if you're uh, on a busy street and you see someone uh, fall you're, and there's like hundreds of people around, your assumption is, well, I'm only one out of 100. Surely someone else out of those other 99 will do something so I, I don't have to take action. The other factor that they highlighted was social influence, which is this idea that we look to other people to, to figure out how we're going to act. So if we don't see people jumping up to help someone, then we won't do anything to help either. So both diffusion of responsibility and social influence work together to essentially paralyze someone from taking action when they are in a large group. And this idea came out of this article from the New York Times that said there were 38 people that had windows that faced where Kitty was being stabbed. They saw her and heard her being murdered and they did nothing about it. And the bystander effect is cited in 
many interventions nowadays. If you've ever been to college and had to take those like alcohol classes, I don't I don't know if that is still a thing, but when I was in undergrad, every year we had to take this like alcohol safety class and you had to watch all these videos about like a sketchy guy slipping something into a girl's drink and they would ask you, oh, you're the bystander. You saw it happen. What would you do? Or you see someone who's too drunk uh, grabbing their car keys to drive home. You're a bystander. What are you going to do? Same with a lot of interventions or like trainings that are around bullying. They really highlight this bystander effect and a lot of the messages of the trainings will be don't be a bystander, right? Don't just wait for someone else to do something. You can be the person to take the first step. So it's not just that the Kitty Genovese case influenced two psychologists to start researching things, but the influence of this case has stretched into modern times. And because of, because of how it influenced these psychologists to start researching, we now have this massive breadth of literature that is focused on the bystander effect and it trickles into everything from like school-based anti-bullying campaigns to HR anti-harassment campaigns like it, it's everywhere and I think you see where I'm going with this is it may not be what really happened to Kitty Genovese. So before I get into the kind of nitty-gritty about the research of the bystander effect I'm going to tell you about what probably actually happened the night that Kitty Genovese was murdered. A lot of this information came to light in uh, around 2004 when journalists started to write about the case again and debunk the original errors of the article that came out in 1964. The first thing to note is that in the original story that I told you up top, you'll if you remember, Kitty had walked around to the rear of her building to try to get in and was in the doorway when Mosley came back to attack her again. From that position where she was, it would have been impossible for anyone in the other building to, to see her. In fact, what had happened when she stumbled uh, around that view was that someone did see her um, from, from the other building on the other side of the street and called the police. Uh, there were two neighbors who were interviewed that did not call the police. One of them was a man named Carl Ross, who uh, was the uh, probably was the unnamed source who said, I didn't want to be involved. Carl Ross lived in the apartment that was right in the doorway where Kitty was trying to get in. He had heard the commotion of Kitty, cracked the door open, and saw her laying on the ground, still alive. He slammed his door closed, called one of his friends, and asked what he should do. And his friend was like, you don't want to get involved with that. So he then climbed out of his window to probably avoid the dying woman on his front doorstep and went to another neighbor's apartment. As he was doing that, Sophie, the woman who had heard Kitty screaming, started to shout into the building, can somebody please call the police? And Carl Ross uh, did call the police after hearing Sophie shout that. So that was the one case of, per of a person who said, I, I don't want to be involved with this. I don't want to call the police. And eventually they did do something, right? Carl did eventually call the police. But something that was revealed in the documentary that Kitty's brother made was that there were several people who were there that night who heard um, Kitty being attacked and did call the police right away. There was even a report of a man who had 
heard the first attack um, when they were in front of the building, where and he opened his window and shouted at Mosley to leave Kitty alone, and that was the reason why Mosley ran away in the after the first attack. He heard someone shouting at him. One of the neighbors made an effort to at least interrupt whatever was going on. The attack also took place um, sometime after, I think, like 3.15 in the morning. So it was dark. It was hard to tell what was going on. And many of the people who um, were around and heard the screams did not know what was going on and assumed it might have been some sort of domestic dispute. But of those who did hear the screams and heard a woman shouting for help, several of them called the police. And in fact, Sophie, the neighbor who found Kitty, was the one who ran down the stairs not knowing that it was Kitty, just knowing that someone was screaming and clearly being attacked. And she she rushed right to the doorway to lend help. There is also very little evidence to suggest that there were even 38 witnesses. Again, it was the middle of the night. A lot of people were not awake, may not have um, even heard the attack and so weren't witnesses because they didn't hear what was going on. But Rosenthal, the editor who pushed for this article to be written, kind of made that number up. He, he either misinterpreted what the police commissioner uh, said to him, but he was quoted in the witness documentary that Kitty's brother made saying, well, it really doesn't matter how many people were there. What matters is that now we have this understanding of the bystander effect. And to, to spend just a minute talking about this, this documentary, this is what is so powerful about the documentary is that it does lay out all of these kind of things that were taken for granted uh, about the story and really humanizes the people involved. Um, Kitty's brother, the one who is cr- behind the documentary, he was 16 at the time that Kitty died. She was 28, so there, there was quite a gap between them, but he... Uh, talks about how he he actively avoided finding out anything about what had happened. It was just too painful. He didn't want to know any details. But as he got older and started to think about it more, he, he wanted to know more and realized that it seemed like a lot of things were missing. And the way in which people talked about the case really forgot about the person of who Kitty was. And he realized when he read through the original articles that no one had ever followed up with these so-called 38 witnesses. So that's kind of one of the primary driving forces of the documentary is he's tracking down the people who were named um, or who would have lived in the apartment at that time. He hears from people telling him, we called the police. When we heard screaming, we called the police and no one ever came back to ask us what we had seen or why we had called the police, but they were very adamant that they had, in fact, heard a woman screaming and needed to get help. Some of the people, like Carl Ross, have have maintained that they were hesitant to call the police, but it definitely was very clear from the documentary that it wasn't this case of, like, all of these people just, like, simultaneously closing their windows and refusing to do anything um, about the situation. So if you are interested in watching the whole thing, it is on YouTube um, for free. I I haven't watched the whole thing in a, in a very long time, but I watched the trailer to just remind myself um, of what was going on. But I do remember it being very powerful and particularly by having the brother be the narrator, it, it does really humanize Kitty 
Because I think that very often in, whether it's in true crime in general or in cases like these where they're kind of like flashbulb cases that have such a, a, a long influence, it can be really easy to think of these cases as their effects or their gory details and not as like the real people who were hurt or, or damaged by this. And the documentary really centers Kitty and remembers her as a person and the complexities of her life um, and also really shows the journey that her brother goes on as he has wrestled with some of these details. And there are several scenes where people are asking him, like, when will it ever be enough? Like, when will you stop asking questions about this? And he really is hell-bent on not giving up, on finding out what exactly happened? Was his sister really abandoned by all these people that heard her crying and screaming? Uh, or was something else going on? Through the, the new reporting that had come out in 2004, um, and, in, and in 2007, I believe there was an article in American Psychologist that uh, debunked some of this as well and, and attempted to debunk uh, Latin and Darley's uh, original research. Through that and the 2015 documentary, we now have this more clear picture of what's happened. And I think we can kind of see that the events that happened of Mosley following her, attacking her, leaving and coming back, those seem to have happened. And that's what the evidence shows and and what uh, Mosley confessed to. But in between that, there were people who, during the first part of Mosley's attack, heard Kitty screaming, uh, either yelled at him or attempted to call the police. Uh, when Mosley came back to attack her again after she was in the building or in the front of the building, um, there were less people who could see her, but the people who did see her realized that something was wrong. A neighbor ran downstairs when they heard her screaming uh, so and, and, and implored other neighbors to call the police. And the police and the ambulance came. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like in time because Kitty did die. But obviously, someone had to have called the police if the police showed up. So this narrative that uh, these callous New Yorkers, these city folk, uh, watched a woman be brutally stabbed and assaulted on the street and did nothing about it is just like patently not true. And if that isn't true, then I think we have to take a look at this idea of the bystander effect and think about, is that true too? Latan and Darley's uh, response to... These stories coming out that the witnesses said, oh, I did call the police. I did shout out my window. I did try to do something to help. They have argued that witnesses, those witnesses changed their story after all of these years to seem like a good person. And so that it doesn't negate their research because these people are lying. Well, that may be possible and maybe there is a, a timeline or a universe out there where these several dozen people have all coordinated or had this idea of like, I have to pretend to be a better person than I am. Um, And they've all come forward with like pretty coordinated stories. Sure, maybe that that happened or could happen. Um, But I think that some of this evidence about the witnesses who never actually got talked to by the New York Times in, in the 60s and did get talked to by Kitty uh, Kitty's brother, um, show that there were people who reacted and it weakens this evidence for the bystander effect. And interestingly enough, in one of the articles that I was reading that 
was talking about it from the psychology perspective, they cited a meta-analysis that was done in 2010. And so if you don't know, a meta-analysis is an article that looks at a bunch of other articles that were published on a subject. So it kind of looks through a bunch of other studies and looks at all of their conclusions and their statistics and sees, is there a consensus here? How strong is the effect? Uh, How likely is it that it's happening? Or are all these studies kind of contradicting each other? And so this meta-analysis actually found that although there does seem to be some effects where groups are slower to intervene than individuals. So if you're like on the street and someone falls down and there's lots of people out and about, it may take a little bit longer for that group to respond than if it's just you on like late at night seeing someone fall. You might respond faster than than the group does. Um, but the meta-analysis concluded that bystander effect ef- effectively disappears when there is a clear emergency uh, or when someone must physically intervene. So if it's something where the people in the group can all hear the hurt person saying, you know, I've broken my leg and I can't get up or I'm having a heart attack or something like that, um, the group is more likely to respond, that bystander effect kind of diminishes when it's very clear. Just hearing someone kind of yelling uh, or not being able to quite clearly hear what the person is yelling uh, isn't enough to diminish the effect all the way. And the second incidence is when there requires some type of physical intervention, like giving CPR, um, you know, lifting a car off of somebody, or uh, I think in the case of like bullying, right? Like having to uh, like step in front of someone to, to keep them safe. So I think the Kitty Genovese case actually maps onto these findings from 2010 quite well, because in the initial part of the attack, what was reported by the witnesses is that it wasn't clear what was going on. Someone was shouting for help, but the assumption was that there was maybe that was a a couple that was fighting or people didn't quite know what was going on. So it was not a clear emergency at the time. However, once Sophie finds Kitty and physically has intervened and starts yelling for help, even people like Carl Ross, who wasn't going to get involved, gets involved by calling the police. The actual events of the Kitty Genovese case more line up with the more modern research around bystander effect than the like fabricated article lines up with the original research by Latan and Darley. I think that is so interesting and I think helps us to see that bystander effect may not be so white and black, so, so clear of an effect may have some sort of influence on people's behavior. But when we look at the complexities of how human beings react to things or interact with each other, the kind of evidence for the bystander effect does seem to fade a little bit. Another kind of critique of the research around the bystander effect is that all of the research focuses on situations where people didn't help out or scenarios where people didn't help out and rarely focuses on instances where people do help each other. So a lot of the kind of research base around the bystander effect is based on solely or not solely, but almost exclusively on instances where it seems to be at play. And I've talked a lot about bias on the mini episodes where I talk about experiments, but this is a very clear 
example of how bias can influence the type of research that one does. If a researcher is setting out to reach a specific conclusion, like proving that bystander effects stand, then they might be more likely to look at instances where human behavior matches onto the bystander effect, or more likely to design experiments that pull for the bystander effect rather than experiments that don't pull for it, or ignoring historical or cultural events where people do reach out and help and support each other. And as I've been reading through this stuff and considering the Kitty Genovese case again after all these years since I was in community college, I think that for me, it's not a a clear-cut case of, well, bystander effect clearly doesn't exist or does exist, but rather that it is something that is very complex. And because human behavior is very complex and often very difficult to predict, it can be really difficult to make these kind of sweeping statements about bystanders and how they interact. All you have to do is look around at stories that come out after things like national uh, tragedies or natural disasters. Like, yes, during the wake of something like Hurricane Katrina, there are stories of people stealing things or breaking things, but there are also hundreds of incredible stories of people donating their boats to go out and rescue others, to you know, supporting each other once they've gotten to safety, if communities pitching in to raise money for people's homes. Um, same thing with, with things like mass shootings or uh, terrorist events, right? Like people do come together. Yes, there there are people that take advantage. Um, you know, I think one of the kind of shocking examples of that is like during the events of 9-11 and the towers actually falling, the rates of... Um, homicide deaths like go up that day because there were a lot of people do like shooting each other and like doing crimes essentially because all the first responders were uh, occupied and yeah there are people that are going to do that there are parts of the human experience that seek opportunities like that it's kind of part of being messy (laughs) and a part of this messy world but on the other side of the story are people coming together and supporting each other and people in the middle who maybe really just needed to look out for themselves that day and didn't have the capacity to help other people or weren't engaging in more nefarious behavior because people's people were occupied, right? Like our ability to respond to situations can kind of cover a, a wide gambit. And so I think that a kind of takeaway from this is that it, Yes, I don't think we need to like throw out this idea of bystander effect. We can still talk about this idea that sometimes there are social pressures to to not step forward. And I think a lot of the work around um, like bullying in, in children and adolescents, the role of social influence there, like we can't ignore that, right? Peer pressure is very strong for children who are still figuring out who they are, how they relate to other people, and how to differentiate themselves from their families. So I don't think we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater, essentially. But I think that it's important for us to be able to understand that, you know, our fellow man is not just out to protect themselves. That regardless of whether you live in the city or the middle of nowhere or somewhere in between, there are people who are going to reach out and help. And my personal belief is that when we hold these kind of 
you know, negative ideas about our fellow human beings, that they're callous and uncaring and, and really don't care if you get murdered or not, that that serves to further isolate us, right? I talk about this a lot when I talk about QAnon, but this role that isolation plays in like dividing us just like cannot be ignored. And in a kind of maybe not so relevant way, but this idea that of, of the bystander effect and that people in groups are like sheep and can't, uh, you know, rouse themselves to help other people, that contributes to us isolating ourselves from each other because why would I want to be around groups of people that are not going to help me? Or why would I feel safe when I'm out in society because, with this understanding that people won't stand up for me or protect me and I'm really on my own? And I, I just don't think that's true. I think there is enough evidence to show that there are people who do stand up for what's right or stand up to to protect other people. I can think of a handful of times in which I have been a bystander and have taken action to help somebody or to stand up for someone. And I can also think of a handful of times in which I have not, but somebody else has. So I don't think that the takeaway should be always be an active bystander who's helping other people, sometimes there is somebody who is going to do it, um, but that we can look at oh, the people around us through this eye of trust that they will help you if it is needed, rather than viewing each other as like suspicious and, un and untrustworthy. And of course, acknowledging the times in which People don't step up and bad things happen and people are not protected. That is the um, complex and sometimes painful, but ultimately beautiful reality of being humans. It's We're really hard to pin down our behavior, um, which makes my job very hard as a psychologist. <laughs> um, but sometimes I think that kind of being open to that complexity makes it less painful um, when people maybe don't live up to our expectations. One last thing that I would like to say about this case is that um, the Kitty Genovese case not only was, is credited as the kind of influence for the bystander effect, but the Kitty Genovese case was also uh, part of the reason for the creation of 911, a national uh, like police dispatch line. Prior to 911 being implemented, people had to know their local precinct. So, like, you had to know which area you were in, which police precinct was, like, connected with your neighborhood. You had to find the phone number for that local precinct and then dial the specific number if you needed the police. Which I can tell you, as someone who has lived their whole life with 911 being in place, that sounds insane. I would never do that. <laughs> like, especially in a time when you couldn't, like, have something speed dialed into your phone. Like, it seemed like a really difficult, like, amount of effort to put into calling the police. Which I think, in the Kitty Genovese case, shows just how much effort the people who did call the police for her had to put into it. That they couldn't just dial three numbers and, you know, the system figured out which uh, dispatcher they needed to be routed to. Like, they had to go look this up and if they didn't have it memorized, like, find the number in a phone book or maybe a helpful pamphlet or whatever. Like, it was a big deal to to call the police before 911 was created. Um, and so, I think, I think it is a 
kind of uh, positive legacy of the Kitty Genovese case is that it was in part uh, used by the New York officials to kind of lend their support to this national um, centralized number for police, um, which has made it so much um, more accessible for people to contact law enforcement when needed. And when I read that, I really was just struck by like, wow. So again, this one throwaway article by the New York Times completely changed the narrative around this case that, first of all, it wasn't even 38 people. Like, we don't even really know how many people it was. It might have been more. It might have been less. Um, And that some of them did overcome surmountable obstacles to try to help Kitty. You know, at least one woman ran downstairs into the, like, alleyway where she potentially could still be encountering the attacker. She ran down there to help Kitty in, in you know, a very dire time. Several people called the police. Some people yelled out their window to try to scare the guy off. Like, people did go through these barriers. And again, not calling 911, but having to, like, look up a whole ass phone number <laughs> and dial it. There, I just, I keep coming back to this idea of human behavior is just so complex. And some of these kind of, not platitudes, but concepts that we have, like the bystander effect, don't really encompass um, all of human behavior. So I hope that we can all walk away from this episode with maybe a little bit more balanced view of not only the Kitty Kitty Genovese case, but also of the bystander effect and really see it for what it is, that there are times when people will act no matter what the obstacles, times when people will not, and a lot of times where people are just kind of in the middle. So that kind of concludes my episode on the Kitty Genovese case. I hope that you enjoyed it and were able to learn something new. As always, I appreciate you sticking around through the whole thing, and I will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye!